This morning we're going to be in John 18, verses 12 through 27. And the last time we looked at the uh, six points of deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, it was just a good message to see that within an hour's worth of time during his arrest that you know, maybe took place an hour or less, that there were six even subtle miracles that were going on that you can see the power of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is God and claimed to be God. Today we're going to look at Jesus' six trials. Uh, we're going to look at the trial with Annas, the former high priest, and then to Caiaphas, the current high priest, and then to the Sanhedrin, uh, the ratifying body, and then after that, Pontius Pilate, and then after that, Herod, and then back to Pontius Pilate. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I wanted to really give you a big picture. We're going to cover all four Gospels. Uh, some of the Gospel writers focus on some trials more than others, uh, but I like to bring them all together so that we really have a, a big picture of what's going on. Some people see five trials, but I see six specific incidents where Jesus was tried. The first three were religious, and the second three were of the world. And just in like manner to Jesus Christ, when we follow the Lord, there may be times that we get opposition from the religious community, oddly enough, uh, but also we get opposition from the worldly community. Okay? And what we have to see here is that there's going to be some indiscretions in the trials. It's certainly a travesty of justice, what happens to Jesus. But some focus too much on the fact that they see him as a victim in this situation, forgetting that he's a victor. Remember, he went to the cross willingly. Now, I look at the situation and I have compassion when I see what Jesus did for me and my sins. But I also remember that he did it because he loves me and we're going to cover that. But some can't get past the point of this travesty of justice. Kind of reminds me of the Sunday school class where the teacher makes the bold move to decide to teach about the beatings and the scourgings, the whippings, the crucifixion, right? Little kids, and, but they're all riveted to the teacher. And uh, when it's all over, they're just fixated. And she's like, wow, this, they're really into it. And little Michael, who's normally disruptive, raises his hand. And the teacher's really excited. Finally, Michael's going to ask me a Bible question. So she goes, yes, Michael. And he says, I just want to know one thing. And she goes, what? He goes, where were the state police when all this was going on? <laughs> we have compassion for our Lord and Savior, but we remember he did it because he loves us. So we're going to jump into verse 12. It says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient or advantageous that one man should die for the people. So we notice right away that they bind him. Do you think ropes or fetters could hold the Lord? No. What held Jesus' hands together, what kept, him from, what kept him following those persecutors is the fact that he loved us. So it wasn't the fetters, it wasn't the soldiers, it wasn't the nails, it wasn't the cross, but it was his love determination that kept him bound and nailed to that cross. He was exposed to ridicule, hatred, injustice, and the full sin burden of mankind. So that needs to set the stage before we go any further. And we have to understand a little bit of history. I like to throw history in here. Uh, when I study the Bible and I go through these different uh, procedures, I just get a greater understanding and it doesn't leave me after that. But historically, 
And this is in secular history. You can find the family of the high priest. Annas was the high priest. Uh, now it's Caiaphas in this particular point, but that's his son-in-law. Why did he go to Annas first? Well, Annas was deposed by the Romans. As a matter of fact, at one point, Annas had five of his sons in the position of high priest. Okay? The issue is that the Romans started appointing this position of high priesthood because there was a tenuous relationship between the Romans and the Jews. So they put Caiaphas, who was probably more malleable to them, in that position. But Annas was a patriarchal figure. He was revered in that society. So Annas got to see Jesus first. And what Annas does is more of an exploratory uh, finding here. As we'll see in verse 19, he has two basic questions to Jesus. He asked him, he's a shrewd man. He's crooked, okay, but he's a shrewd man. He asked him about his disciples and his doctrine. Actually, neither one of these have to do with God. In, a, in essence, I could see him saying, so how many followers you got? Fifty? A hundred? A thousand? Maybe that'll change how we kind of work this trial because we could get some opposition here. What about your doctrine? Remember, they were, the, high, the priests were mostly Sadducees, which didn't believe in the afterlife and the resurrection. Very strange. Uh, and then you had your Pharisees who were more strict but did believe those things. So I could just see him asking him, well, are you more Sadducean in your outlook? Are you more um, you know, Hillel? Are you more uh, Pharisaical? Or, or are you in a scene? Do you kind of like hang out in the woods? And, you know, so this is the two questions that he asks him. Verse 14 tells us that Caiaphas gave counsel that it was expedient that one man would die for the nation. For the sake of the nation, that one man would die. Now, you wonder sometimes, was this just shrewdness, his position, or did he actually receive this from God? Uh, Second Chronicles, uh, I named my son Josiah because I love the story about this awesome king. But Josiah's life was cut short, I think about 39 years old, because he interfered with a battle uh, with Egypt and um, who was going across Israel to fight another army. And Pharaoh Necho of the Egyptians said to Josiah, you know, your God wants this and I'm telling you from your God, don't interfere. Well, Josiah didn't listen to him. He interfered and Josiah was killed in battle. So well, his whole life was stellar up to that point. How do we deal with this when we see that somebody who may not be in the faith or may be um, not even a believer or a respecter of God where God gives them specific, specific wordings? I want you to turn with me, and I, I refer to this a lot, but I think it's really important that we look at this. You know, last Sunday, we some funny stuff. You know, we had a lot of laughs. This Sunday, we're, it's going to be a little bit more serious. Um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, Lord, look, I wore a crucifix. Look, I was part of a Calvary chapel. Look, I have a fish on my back bumper. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does, a doer, not just a hearer, who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Master, Kurios, Lord, Jesus, have we not prophesied in your name, indicating that they did? Cast out demons in your name, indicating that they did. The name of God is very powerful, the name of Jesus. 
and done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, this group of apparent good uh, do-gooders, I never knew you. Wow, how could God not know somebody? He created us all. It's a different form of the word to know. He, I didn't have familiarity with you. We didn't have a relationship. Who are you? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And I think today we live in an age of deception. We hear a lot of things. There's a lot of ministry out there. We hear a lot of talking heads. And we have to make sense of it. Okay? And some will say things that are profound. Maybe some things that they say will be biblical. But they might not be the ones that are actually getting into the kingdom. We need to have a relationship with the Lord. So Jesus was on trial, but Annas was also on trial. A different type of trial. Annas was a crook, religious deception. It was a good old boys club. Again, secular sources will tell you this. They elaborate more than the scripture even does. But Jesus will die and go to the cross for the sins of Annas. Keep that in mind. Let's look at perspective this morning. Verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. And the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So who is this other disciple? Well, a lot of people think it's John. Some say another disciple. I could see John in this. I can see that, you know, John's father ran a, a fishery. He had hired servants, so he probably had a little bit of wealth. And, you know, fish was a common staple of a Medi the Mediterranean diet and still is. So me, he might have even sent John as a boy to send the, uh, the goods and the products to the priesthood, you know, as he had his route, so to speak. And that's all just speculation. But it appears that John goes in, realizes Peter's no longer with him, goes back and says, no, no, he's with me. And he lets him into the courtyard. Now... We don't know what happens with this other disciple, so I'm not going to speculate. That would be eisegesis instead of exegesis, which is improper. So I'm going to leave that aside, but I'm going to focus on Peter. Peter seems to be riding the fence. He doesn't really want to get involved in what's going on. And sometimes today, we know something is right, but we don't want to get involved. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me. I don't care. But because of Peter's initial double-mindedness and self-preservation, he denies the Lord. Now, Peter's not in trouble. Remember, Jesus healed the ear of Malchus, the guy who Peter cut his ear off. Everything's good. Jesus gets rid of the evidence. You know, the blood is gone. There's no sutures. So Peter's in the clear. Peter could have said, you know, I walked with Jesus for three years. Let me tell you about my Lord. But he didn't. At this point, Peter was a traitor. He was a horrible example of a Christian and especially, certainly, a disciple. His behavior was an opprobrium. It brought shame and disgrace. But here's my question. How many times have we been a Peter? Let's just not look at this as some story thousands of years ago. Insert ourselves into the text. How many times have we denied the Lord? I know as a new believer it was hard. 
You know, I, I'm in a, in, in a rough profession. And, uh, you know, there were times that I wanted to just really not have anybody ask me and give me a hard time about it. It's different now. It took a while. How many times have we not stood up for the Lord when we should have? How many times have we not stood up for someone or something that was a righteous situation, but we didn't? In the age of social media, we're all tied to somebody. There's so many tentacles in our lives. We have business ties. We have different ties. And we may feel, you know what, that's going to cause me problems. I'm going I'm to count the cost here, and I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist. This is what Peter was doing. I tell you this, that Peter also, also was hanging out in the enemy camp. And the more we hang out in the enemy camp, and the more we don't realize our boundaries, the more we become traitors. But the Lord was working on him. And let's not be too hard on Peter, because if you remember, in the garden, Peter swung that sword. I believe in that moment of adrenaline and testosterone, I believe that you he would have probably tried to take out a few soldiers before they held them down and arrested them. But, but the Lord stopped them, not the soldiers. So Peter did try to really save the Lord, in a sense. Except the problem was, he was using a physical sword when Jesus wanted him to use his spiritual sword. See, Peter at that point did not know how to walk. And you know what? The same thing happens today. There are believers that maybe even come up, and they think that when they come up, the cravings for the addictions are going to go away. They think that the rage and the anger are going to go away. They think their financial problems are just going to disappear into thin air. They think that once they take those 10 steps, or if you're in the back, 50 steps to the front, all your problems are over. Let me tell you something. Your walk just starts. We can't come up here and expect that God is going to do everything for us. That's why it's called a Christian walk. Walk means that our brain has to tell our body to move. And we need to move forward. And this morning, brothers and sisters, maybe there's some here that haven't learned to walk yet. You can go from church to church and listen to all the greatest guest speakers. You can read all the Christian books and media. You can be immersed in the Christian community, and that's not going to do a darn thing for you. It's not going to help you walk. Walk is an act of the will. Okay? So this is what's going on here. Some believe that when they get immersed in the Christian community or even join a Calvary, that they've crossed the finish line. When Paul spoke about running the race to win, he didn't mean joining a Calvary or a Baptist church or being immersed in the community. That's not the finish line. There's too many Christians proverbially sitting on the sidelines while the other ones are still running on the track. And they think they've crossed the finish line and they haven't. This is a lifelong pursuit. I remember uh, actually yesterday we had an awesome time at the men's group. We had 30 guys show up. I think that's the most that we've had. And it was pretty heavy stuff. I mean, there was some sparks flying. You know, we talked about walking. We talked about doing. The Bible says don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer. Be first. If you really are, then you do. It comes naturally. Not because somebody makes you do it, but because it's part of who you are. And we do it grudgingly? No, we do it with joy. So we need to be a hearer and not... We need to be a hearer, but most importantly, also to be a doer. 
Peter was on trial. Again, it looked like Jesus was on trial, but Peter was on trial. He made a mockery of the Christian faith. He made a mockery of discipleship. But you know what? The Lord continued to walk to that cross to die for Peter's sins. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if well, why do you strike me? Were these inquisitors really looking for the truth? And today we need to know the difference as well. You can tell that question. You know, I kind of smirk sometimes. I hear the question and it's a setup. You know, are you really looking for the truth or is it just for an argument? Well, I heard and this scripture said and, you know, Do you really want to know the truth? We know that in the garden when Jesus was arrested, taking the Gospels together, Jesus even said, why do you come with weapons? Why didn't you take me when I taught openly? He's revealing their hypocrisy. Again, it comes down to the fact that they really weren't looking for the truth. This was a kangaroo court. And the irony is that that their trial was clandestine. It was secret. And they were the ones breaking their own laws. They were doing things in darkness. See, Jesus spoke in the light. But they were speaking to him as if he was an evildoer while the whole thing was a sham. Be careful of those that are sneaky, of those that do things in the darkness, that take you aside and whisper to you and say, now don't let it leave this conversation. I speak in the light. I've said things for nine years from this pulpit that if I've exposed my glass house, because that's what you do when you're a pastor, start, you know, people can start putting pieces together. Speak openly. Speak in the light. If it's not good for public consumption, maybe if we're speaking too much in the darkness, that we may need to reevaluate how we talk. Okay? He said, why do you strike me? The Lord dared to resist their hypocrisy. And in like manner, don't be surprised if you're doing the Lord's will and you expose hypocrisy that they come after you as well. Verse 24. Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. It's kind of sad. I mean, if you could actually see a video or a DVD of what was happening, you know, it, it's, it's some people have done a good job making movies of it, but we really don't know. Jesus now goes to his second trial. Now, this one is in front of Caiaphas, and here things go from bad to worse. I'm going to take all the Gospels together again. There's more religious leaders present. It's getting increasingly worse. Uh, there's false witnesses that come forth, uh, and Jesus... He doesn't answer a lot of what they say. Now, we're going to see what he does answer and why he does answer it. But a lot of the things he doesn't answer. And we don't have to answer everything that comes our way either. I remember fellowshipping with uh, an older couple, pastor and his wife, and she said, you know, I don't show up for every fight that's prepared for me. 
I actually stopped and I thought about that one. That's pretty good. I don't show up for every fight that's prepared for me. You know, there's some things I just don't engage in because I don't need to. And that's really taking Jesus' example there. The high priest asked Jesus, are you the son of God? And we're going to cover that. We're going to turn now to Matthew 26, where Matthew adds more detail here. Matthew 26, starting with verse 63. Verse 63, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard this blasphemy. Why did Jesus answer? Because he said, I adjure you by the living God. Jesus is God. Now, there's a few things God can't do, and we can do this in a theology class. God can't lie. God can't, you know, poor God, he can't lie. You know, he, he's so powerless to lie. He can't go back on his word, and he can't deny himself. When he said to him, I adjure you by the living God, and Jesus had to say, it is as you say. God cannot deny himself. They had no idea what they were messing with when they were uh, going through this, this sham. So again, any group that calls themselves Christian that doesn't believe in the deity of Christ they cannot fully do a study on the book of John because it's all through the scripture. Now, what was the big issue? What was the rub here? The problem was that if you look at John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple early in his ministry. If you look later on in the Gospels, he does it again. We don't know how many times he went through the temple, saw the hypocrisy, saw the usury, saw the ripping off of the common folk, you know, I go to bring my dove in to sacrifice or my lamb or whatever I'm bringing. And the priesthood had this setup of their own animals that they groomed really nice and made them look pretty. Maybe put some makeup on them, I don't know. But they would look at your animal, you know, you're an average person, and they would say, there's a blemish. Oh, I found a blemish. We, we can't sacrifice your animal, you're going to have to buy one of ours. Now, the price was like three or four times the amount of a, a, a typical animal, and you could have traveled weeks or months to get to Jerusalem to do this, and now you're stuck. You've got to buy one of their animals. So they were wealthy, you know, religious hypocrisy. Uh, they were wealthy beyond belief, and Jesus exposed it, and they hated that he exposed them. Let, let me tell you something. I've been a hypocrite before. Let's be honest. If we've been a Christian long enough, we've been hypocrites. We can do one of two things when somebody exposes our hypocrisy. We can defend ourselves, put up a wall, or we can just say, you know what, yeah, you're right. It goes so much easier when we do it the second way. But when someone exposes our hip hypocrisy and it's really deep, we count the costs. Do I want this to come out? What is this going to mean for me? Is this going to mean something financial to me? In this case, it did, and they hated him for that. But... You know, when I deal with a person who's um, really antagonistic to the things of God, I find two things present. And there's other things, but the majority of the time, two things. Number one, they're angry, and you can see the visceral hatred and, and, and emotions against God. Number one, there's a tragedy that happened in their life. 
and they felt God left, let them down. We live in a life filled with tragedy, unfortunately. That's what happens on this side of eternity for various reasons. The other reason is because of some type of religious hypocrisy. I like to get to the root of things. I, I wonder why people behave the way they do, and when I sit with them and talk with them in a non-confrontational manner, it usually comes out. So the people were doing this because they were feared God, but they did it grudgingly because their representatives were ripping them off. And Jesus exposed that. So the third thing, the third person we find, again, Jesus is on trial, but Caiaphas was on trial. Caiaphas did not want to do away with his lifestyle. Even John the Baptist spoke about some of these religious leaders, how well they were doing. Uh, how well-to-do they were, how uh, you know, like they were by the, the upper echelon. They liked that lifestyle. It's hard to break away from that. But Jesus died for the sins of Caiaphas. He went to the cross even for his enemies. And these guys had no idea. Now at some point here in the trial, uh, in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, you know, the rooster crows... Peter denies for the third time, and something is added in Matthew and Luke's gospel. It says that Peter wept bitterly. Now, I looked up that Greek word, and that Greek word can mean violently. That's interesting. You ever see, you, I mean, we've all cried at some point in time, right? There's different types of crying. Sometimes you tell somebody, or they remember something, and they don't say a word, and tears roll down their face. Others they whimper. Others, they sob. Others, it's a lot louder. Others almost convulse, where they cry so forcefully that they have to go, <laughs> they need to get some air in because they're expending a lot of energy. Peter wept bitterly. He wept violently. Now, this guy was not a wuss. This guy was, this guy was a guy. You know, when you're, if you ever go to the Mediterranean and, and they're on these boats, they're not like big ocean liners and they're trying to pull the nets up, and their legs have to be really strong because they need balance as the boat is rocking. And pulling those nets up, it's like doing those rows. Their biceps and their back are being used to, to yank that. I mean, fish are heavy. You have all the fish in your hand, and they're pulling these nets up. This guy was a man's man, but he broke down. I really like Peter. I know it started off a little dicey here, but this is a good, this is a good story about Peter. You know, Wednesday night's Bible study... Uh, the title I taught in 2 Samuel 10 was Repentant or Repulsive. When we do something that's really bad and really sinful, we're either repentant, which is a good thing. It's like taking a shower, man. It's like being dirty. It's a spiritual shower, and it all comes off you when you're repentant. Or we can be repulsive. King Hanan, because of his, his sin and because he refused to repent and dug his heels in, some 40,000 people died in this needless battle. That happens with world leaders, unfortunately. For us, it just may be a family situation. It may hurt others. But we need to be repentant. Otherwise, we become repulsive. We become repulsive to our own character and reputation, but also those around us and those that love us. Peter was repentant. Today, many Christians lack power in their lives because they don't know how to repent. I've seen this firsthand. I've been there years ago. But what happens is they just move on. They do something evil or sinful, and they don't repent. And because there's so many churches out there, they may bounce from church to church to church. They're on the seventh, eighth, ninth church, and they wonder why everybody treats them this way, but they don't look in the mirror. They're not repentant. 
Because what happens is we bring the same garbage, the same baggage with us everywhere we go. It's the same thing with divorce situations. Divorced four or five times, you're married for your sixth time, and you don't like your spouse, maybe look in the mirror. Maybe it wasn't the long string of spouses you left behind. Maybe there was something that you needed to repent of. But society teaches us to love ourselves, to build ourselves up, to have confidence, to be a self-made person. So there's this, this antithesis going on between what society is teaching us and what we should be learning from the scripture. I have a lot of respect for Peter. I also have a lot of respect for those that really screw up in life and have the courage to show their face again and they come back in a spirit of repentance. That's impressive to me. Arrogant people are not impressive and honestly, I don't have time to waste with people like that. So are we repulsive or are we repentant? Peter was looking for a second chance. Peter was looking to show the Lord that he really loved him and that he's changed. That's what repentance looks like. Before we get to verse... um, Before we continue on here into verse 28, Luke 22 records really a third trial. And basically, I'm not going to read it, but the day is dawning, and the Sanhedrin, Jesus comes before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a body of 71 religious leaders. 71, an odd number, in case there was a tie. They were really like the Supreme Court and the state police wrapped all up in one. They had the power to cast sentence on you, and then they also had a a law enforcement arm to carry it out. So what happened in this situation was um, this probably was no quorum, or maybe there was barely a quorum, not really sure. More religious leaders, except the ones absent, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who uh, were favorable to Jesus. Remember, they were the good guys, and they were also religious leaders. They, They believed Um, Probably it was absent there. There were no beatings in this one, no drama. What it does appear was a a ratification. You know, let's cast the vote. Got to make this look legitimate. It's the morning. They re-question him, reconfirm, and then ratify. So that's your your third trial that goes on there. Just and, And I know some have done a study on this. These trials were a travesty of justice because... The jurisprudence system back then is similar to ours. As a matter of fact, a lot of ours come from more ancient jurisprudence systems, you know, the legal system. What they did was they pushed, you know, they, we have our Fifth Amendment. I plead the Fifth. They pushed self-incrimination against Jesus. They coerced the confession. They beat the prisoner. They condemned him without a quorum, double jeopardy, and disallowing cross-examination of the witnesses. So, I mean, it just was a mess. But sometimes when you're doing right, the deck will be stacked against you. Expect it. Don't let anybody tell you when you become a Christian, God's going to, you know, he's going to divert you from every pitfall and trial in your life. It's not true. And sometimes it'll come from others. So the fourth group, the Sanhedrin, was on trial. They gave the appearance that everything was legitimate. The ends justify the means, so to speak. And sometimes when we have a relationship with God and we're doing the right thing, our opposition will come from religious people. It'll come from church people. Expect it. But again, Jesus walked to that cross for all 71 members of that Sanhedrin, um, or maybe 50 that condemned him, whatever the number was. Also want to look at this. In Matthew 27, Judas gives back the money that he sold out Jesus for, 
The religious leaders won't take it. The question is, was Judas um, repentant or was he remorseful? Uh, seems more of the, the latter. And he goes and hangs himself. He kills himself. Jesus died for the sins of Judas as well, by the way, the fifth person. I do want to focus on this. We can say a lot of things of Judas. You know, he's a, an easy villain. But my issue with Judas was that Judas was a quitter. God hasn't called us to be quitters. You know? It's not good as a Christian to be a quitter. It's never the right time. It's always too soon to quit. And even if we've done horrific things, God forgives us and wants us to walk in repentance and restoration. Restoration is beautiful. It's like it never happened. It's like those, um, those cleanup companies, you know, they show a picture of fire damage and water and they go in there and they clean it up and they say, it's like it never happened. Well, God wants to do a restoration process in us that'll put serve pro to shame, you know what I'm saying? I just want to say this as well. Initially, and it's going to be controversial, I'm sure. Initially, I think what Peter did was worse than Judas, and I'll tell you why. Because the religious leaders, Judas was a shyster, you know. Judas came with an agenda. Judas was a mole. He was on the inside. When he came to the religious leaders, he was looking for a fast buck. Jesus didn't do what he wanted him to do. And the religious leaders, I don't think they respected him. If you look at the, the account in the other gospel, there's this dialogue between them and Judas. They're like, beat it. Get lost, guy. You did what we asked you to do. Take a hike. Peter was different. Peter was close to the Lord. He was the, in, on the inner circle, the one of three. Peter was, was very vocal about his love for the Lord. He was very, I could just see him, Jesus, you know, if, if anyone steps forward, I'll take him out. I'll be your sergeant of arms. You know, he was very, um, he was temporal a lot of times, but you could just see his, his love for the Lord. Peter was a bigger fish to Satan than Judas was. But Peter changed. And that's always afforded to us. Peter didn't quit. Judas did. You know, I've seen this in church for years, and, and I remember even the, the man and the men that discipled me. It was tough discipleship. It wasn't fun. I wondered sometimes why I was even bothering. It was really tough discipleship, right? Smiling. <laughs> what are we doing today? Are we quick to run? Are we easily offended? Are we so fragile that when we're taught something scripturally and it's a little hard that we, we turn and run away? Are we that weak as the body of Christ? We shouldn't be because you know what? The world's not attracted to that. Hear me out. It's never the right time to quit, but it's always the right time to repent. Now, tradition says this. Check this out. Well, first let's say that I kind of find it humorous. I try to find the humor in what's going on. All four Gospels mention Peter's failures. Could you picture the Gospel writers? They don't agree on, I mean, they agree on everything, but they didn't put everything in that they felt was the utmost importance. But it's funny because all four of them said, oh yeah, Peter. <laughs> Peter. Oh yeah, Peter. I second that. I third that. All four Gospel writers have Peter's mess-ups in there. Did you ever realize that? Now the other issue is that uh, legend or tradition has it that Peter's detractors, even after the resurrection, those, those that didn't like him, would make rooster noises. They would be smart, and they'd make rooster noises so Peter could hear. 
So here's a guy who it's emblazoned indelibly in the word of God, his screw-ups. How would you like that? Your worst moment in scripture for all of eternity. And the rooster noises. Did that stop Peter? I bet him it, it, it caused him to press even harder to please the Lord, to love the Lord, to win people to Jesus. He was one of the incredible columns of marble that held the church up. It, it caused Peter to be resolute, not to quit. Not to quit. So whatever's going on in your life this morning, don't quit. Take a lesson from the Apostle Peter. You know, God wants you to be resolute too. Well, I'm not Peter. Well, I'm not. Well, I'm not. So these, look, they were regular people. So who was really on trial? Jesus? Well, let's look again. I can point out to you many more that were on trial. And these men, their sin had separated them from God. And Jesus went to the cross for them. But I have to tell you this, we're also on trial. Because our sins have separated from, uh, from God as well. It's funny how a few thousand years or a few centuries can, can change. And church changes its doctrine. And it's all well now. You know, 2013, sin, blood, hell. We don't talk about that anymore. Like God decided to change his mind. He got soft in his old age. No. God is eternal. And he never changes. Because he never receives new information. He knows the end from the beginning. So I would just say this. Be careful when you put Jesus on trial. There was a man named Stan Telchin, a Jewish man. And his daughter had went to college. And Jewish girl, she goes to college. She starts reading the Bible. She comes back and says, Dad, I'm a Christian. Actually, we had him speak years ago. You could imagine how well that went over. Uh, you're a what? We're Jewish. So he said, once and for all, I'm going to do a, a search and I'm going to dig up history. I'm going to prove to you that he was a charlatan. The man becomes saved himself and writes a book. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, and he speaks in, in Christian venues. He tried to put the Lord Jesus on trial. Now here's the funny thing. When you look into the, the life of Jesus or you look into the word of God, it's a mirror. It's a spiritual mirror. As you look into it and you read it, the more we read it, the more we see God. Isaiah 6, we covered this at the men's uh, discipleship yesterday. The more we see God, the more we realize, like Isaiah did, that we're sinners and that we need salvation and we need a savior. And then when that permeates our heart and that fills us, we want to walk. We don't just want to be in the Christian community. That's a ripoff. Exist in the Christian community? Listen, there's plenty of pastors out there that'll talk to you about the atheists and the, the Muslims and all this kind of stuff. Listen, judgment starts in the house of God. It starts here this morning. It's a ripoff to be just immersed in the Christian community. We're to walk. We're to love God. The more we find out about him, the more we realize we're sinners. The more we realize what Jesus did for our sins, the more we want to walk the more we want to bring other people into the kingdom. It's a serious business. You know, in law enforcement, we have something that's called an investigative detention. If you think a crime is committed or is about to be committed, you can detain somebody until you can confirm, or they're not under arrest yet, until you can confirm or dispel that it happened or was about to happen. This morning, when you looked into the word, you can't just let it go. Just let it go. I'm going to ignore it. You either have to confirm that it's true or try to find evidence to dispel it. Because one day, if you just ignore it and ignore it, one day you'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, I gave it to you that morning. 
and then I gave it to you that afternoon, and then that person talked to you in the doctor's office. When it comes to his word, this is not something we can just move to the side and say, I don't have time for it. It's something that we have to investigate. So this morning we looked at the trials of Jesus, but we find out as well that we're on trial. And the only way that we can be pardoned is through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we love your word. We thank you for your word. We love the fact that uh, it's encouraging, but it's also convicting. What a great mix. That we would purge the...